Let us turn in God's word this morning to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 2, which teaches us about how we know our misery, namely out of the law of God. Nehemiah 8, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, Melchiah, and Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Then Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads, and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Odijah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. 
And the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, Unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired words. May he bless the reading of the Holy Scriptures unto your hearts. It's on the basis of what we have read in Nehemiah 8 and many other passages of the Scriptures besides that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2, question 3, Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, Nehemiah chapter 8 contains the record of the history of the Israelites after they had returned from the Babylonian captivity. They had spent 70 years as exiles in that foreign land where they sat by Babel streams and wept, for they were far removed from the house of God. Then God had raised up a ruler who permitted the Israelites to return. There were two separate waves of 
individuals that return from captivity. The first wave of the returning remnant is recorded in the book of Ezra. And then the second re, uh, wave of return is recorded for us in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, one of the leaders of this return, observed upon his coming to Jerusalem that the walls that surrounded the city of Jerusalem were in shambles. So Nehemiah made it his labor as a leader in the nation to build up the physical walls of Jerusalem. The occupants of the land of Canaan joined with Nehemiah in this labor, but it was a labor not without conflict. There were those who were opposed to the rebuilding of the walls. The scriptures tells us of certain adversaries, Sanballat and Tobiah, who led a resistance to the faithful Israelites who were seeking to reestablish safety in the city of Jerusalem by constructing these walls. But eventually, after toiling through much adversity, we are told in Nehemiah chapter 6 that the walls were completed. So what then will Israel do after They've returned from captivity, and they've established a fortification around them. The first thing they do, Nehemiah chapter 7, is they establish a record of the genealogy. Listed in Nehemiah chapter 7 is the list of those who returned from captivity. To make sure that All things were done in decency and in order, that they knew who was with them and could prove their lineage. They went through this work of establishing the genealogy. But what then? The second thing that they did after establishing the walls was they went and they found the book of the law. Nehemiah and Ezra, who is the priest, the scribe, led the Israelites in Jerusalem in a worship service. They built a pulpit out of wood. They stood on that pulpit. They read the law. And they caused the people to understand the meaning of that law of Moses. And the scriptures tell us that as the Jews in Jerusalem heard that law being read and explained unto them, they wept. Verse 9 For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And that leads us to our consideration this morning of the second Lord's Day. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of the law of God. 
Let's consider man's misery this morning first, known as it's known out of the law of God. Second, confessed, looking at the final question and answer, where we confess we are prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. And then third, needful, expressing our need for a deliverer. This Lord's Day teaches us about our misery. What then is our misery? Misery, as it is expounded by the Heidelberg Catechism, is this. It's the condition of man who lives apart from, separate from the holy law of God. It's the condition of the individual who has distanced himself from the holy precepts of God, It's the condition of the individual who has become a law unto himself and who no longer submits unto, if ever he did, submit unto the divine and perfect law of God. The condition of the one who separates himself from the law of God is that he or she is wretched in that condition. That's misery. It's the condition of being wretched as one separates or alienates himself from the holy law of God. The Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 2 speaks of, or rather in Lord's Day 1, question and answer 2, speaks of our sins and our miseries. How many things are necessary for thee to know that thou enjoying this comfort mayest live and die happily? Three, the first, how great my sins and miseries are. The second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And when the Catechism speaks here of sins and miseries, it is not so much speaking of two separate realities as it is speaking of one reality. Our sins are our miseries. And our misery is our sinfulness. Misery is the condition of one who repudiates the holy law of God. The misery that the Catechism speaks of is a universal problem upon all of this earth. Mankind recognizes that there is misery and that there is suffering upon this earth. And so the man of this world attempts to find what is the reason or the cause for this misery upon the earth. He looks and looks. He searches to try to find why it is that there is misery, what the cause and what the cure for that misery would be. But the man of this world is unable to find ultimately what is the cause of that misery, and yet he experiences it. Deep down, he knows that misery is the repudiation of Jehovah God and the laws that Jehovah God has established. Everyone experiences this. The poor man experiences misery as the poor man seeks to eke out an existence upon this earth. And the rich man 
who lives from an earthly perspective a comfortable life, also has misery upon this earth. The healthy, the strong, struggle with misery, and the lowly and the oppressed struggle with misery. The question that the Catechism gives unto us is, Whence knowest thou thy misery? That is, how do you know your misery? Now this is a somewhat striking question. The question seems at first to be a peculiar and odd question. And not only odd, but also unnecessary. A peculiar question because who is even interested in knowing more about their misery? By nature, we would try to suppress thoughts that cause us misery. Man tries to find and contemplate that which brings him joy and satisfaction and happiness in his life. So why then is the catechism directing our attention that unto that which is misery? An odd question. But then as well, one might say that this question is completely unnecessary. I don't need someone to teach me about what my misery is. I already understand misery. Misery is self-evident to anyone who has spent any length of time upon this earth. The calluses upon one's hands. The lines of worry etched upon the forehead of the parents indicate that we as human beings upon this earth already are familiar with misery. And so why then would the catechism devote a question unto knowing our misery? Whence knowest thou? How do you know your misery? We must understand carefully the purpose of the catechism in this question. The primary purpose of the catechism here is not to ask us whether or not we are aware of our misery. Certainly we are aware of it. But the purpose of the catechism in giving us this question is to instruct us in what is the true nature of and seriousness of our misery. The correct standard must be applied as we seek to understand our misery. If we look to the wrong standard as we are inclined to do, then we will not find the proper solution or cure for the misery of man. The doctor understands this. If one goes unto the doctor and one tells the doctor of the ailments that he has, But the doctor perhaps is not listening carefully. His mind is preoccupied. Or if the doctor conducts a hasty examination because he has something urgent waiting him afterwards, 
and then the doctor gives the wrong diagnosis and then prescribes the wrong medicine for the ailment, the doctor by so doing can aggravate the suffering of that individual. And so the doctor understands full well that he must correctly understand what is the cause of this man's misery before he applies the balm. So it is then for us as God's children, we must examine what is the standard, what is the norm that is set by God for us. If we apply the wrong standard or if we look to the wrong norm, then we never will be able to apply the proper balm to the problem that is man's sin and man's misery. How do you know your misery? The evolutionist would console himself with this fact. He would say, look, things are improving upon this earth. There's upward, onward advancement on this earth. Yes, I understand that there is misery and there is suffering, but so long as there is continued progression on this earth, then I can comfort myself that the generation that follow, the generations that follow after me will not suffer, will not have as much misery as what I do. And so the evolutionist applies the wrong standard. So perhaps we too are guilty of applying the wrong standard. How do you know your misery? Do we not oftentimes measure our misery by comparing ourselves to the neighbor's misery? And as long as I'm not suffering as much as what the neighbor appears to be suffering, as long as my life has more comforts in it than what comforts the neighbor has, then we console ourselves all is well. How do you measure one's misery? What is the standard? The emphatic answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is a law. Whence knowest thou thy misery out of the law of God? Ezra and Nehemiah understood this. And that's why as soon as they had the walls built and the genealogy established, they opened up the book of the law and read it and caused the people to understand the meaning of God's law. God's law is the standard. God's law is what it means to be normal. It's the norm. To be normal is to love God, to delight in God. To live according to the standard is to set apart one in seven days. To live according to the standard is not to commit adultery, not to steal, not to covet, not to permit murderous thoughts to rise up in one's mind, but to live according to the standard is, in a word, 
to love. That's what the law of God requires of us, and that is the standard that is set by Jehovah God himself. What is the normal Christian life? It is love. It is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and then to love the neighbor as thyself. This might not be what we would initially conceive of when we consider the law of God. Love. When we consider the law of God, we might think of that stone on which God etched the law, the two tables of stone. We might think of the fact that the law is unyielding. The law is unchanging throughout all the generations of this earth. Or we might conceive of the law as being primarily a demonstration of the justice and the holiness of God. And it's true that the law does reveal unto us the holiness and the justice of God. But we must never forget, beloved, that primarily the law is the law of love. You see, the law has its source and its origin in love. The law comes from the God who is love and whoever deals with his people in love. We mustn't imagine that when God gave the Mosaic law unto the Israelites in the wilderness, that this was some form of retaliation by Jehovah God because the Israelites had just fallen into the sin of calf worship. And because God was upset with the Israelites for worshiping that golden calf, God in revenge got back at the Israelites by, here you go, here's the Ten Commandments, let this burden you down now because you turned away from me. No. The law was not given unto the Israelites because God was angry and because God was going to pour out His justice upon these rebellious Israelites. But God gave His law unto Israel because he loved them. This came out even in the reading of the law this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other God before me. First God delivered them. He set them free from their captors. Then he gave them the law. That's why Jesus Christ says in his summary of the law that Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then concludes with these two words, or these words, and these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These two commandments referring to love God and love the neighbor. I can remember as a young boy struggling to Make sense of that. What does that mean? That all the law and the prophets hang 
and these two commandments. Almost raises a morbid thought, like a rope with a noose. But the idea here of the law and the prophets hanging on these two commandments is this. The two commandments, love God and love the neighbor, are like the pillars that hold up the weight of the rest of the law. Here are the Ten Commandments. And beneath these Ten Commandments, which holds up this moral law that God has given unto His people, is the one pillar, love God, and the other pillar, love the neighbor as you love yourself. Love is the aim of the law of God. This is what God expects of His children, that they would love one another. And it's as we stand before that law of love that we must make the confession, I'm not prone to love, but I'm prone to hate. That's question five of the catechism. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? There's a lot included in that question itself. Canst thou keep all these things, all these things referring back to every jot and every tittle of the law that God has given unto us? Generally, the commandment of the law is love. But the fact that the general commandment is love does not mean that we can do away with the specific requirements and applications of the law of God. And as Christians, we must always bear that in mind. Love is difficult work. Love requires selflessness, giving of oneself for the good of the neighbor. Almost any Christian on this earth will talk generally about love. We'll speak about the importance of love. We'll give the general admonition, we ought to love one another. And we'll even declare that life would be so much better if only there was more love upon this earth. It's relatively easy to consent unto those general truths about love. But now let's become more specific here about love. The Catechism says, can you keep all these things perfectly? Can you apply that standard of love in the workplace? with the colleague who stands next to you who makes the environment in the workplace very difficult for you? Can you as husbands and as wives love your spouse perfectly when your spouse sins against you? Can you as children in the schoolyard love that child who does not treat you so nicely. You keep all these things perfectly. Perfectly, not according to what standard we would set, but according to the standard that God has set. Perfectly means that it's not just outward motions of showing evidences of love for the neighbor, but perfectly means that this has to arise out of our heart 
and out of our soul. There needs to be a renewal of the heart and of the mind in the Christian in order that the Christian be able to keep all these things perfectly. And then notice as well that this commandment is with regard to one's ability. It says, are you able to, canst thou keep all these things perfectly? The question is not, do you keep all these things perfectly? Of course, no one does keep all these things perfectly. Nor is the question even, do you desire to keep all these things perfectly? Do you have that longing in your heart to keep all of these things perfectly? That's not the question that the catechism gives us. But the question is, are you able? Can you? The honest and humble answer of the child of God is, no, I can't. In no wise, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's the humble, spirit-filled answer of the child of God. A worldly man would never respond in such a way. To some level, the worldly man will acknowledge misery, And the man of the world will acknowledge even that there are transgressions of certain laws, certain rules that are put in place. The worldly man may well acknowledge the importance and necessity of the laws of the state. The worldly man may understand that there are consequences if one violates those laws of the state, and he might even desire that justice be served for those who do break the laws of the state. The man of the world will even acknowledge at times that he makes poor choices, poor decisions. He does so because, according to the canons of Dort, there remain in fallen man glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God of the differences between good and evil. And he discovers some regard for virtue. But with the man of the world who understands something of that which is right and that which is wrong, goes so far as to say that I am prone by nature to hate not only Jehovah God, but also the neighbor whom God has put in my pathway. He would never progress to such a length. It is only the one who has been quickened by the Holy Spirit, who has been given the image of God, which consists of righteousness and holiness and knowledge of God, that one is able to confess that by nature I am prone to hate both God and my neighbor. The individual makes this confession as he stands before that holy law of God. The more that he comes to know that law of God, the more he comes to see how prone he is to hate both God and the neighbor. 
At first, the Christian does not have a very clear understanding of how prone he is to hate. At first, the Christian is as a little child who has but a basic understanding of the requirements of the law. But then the Christian grows in his understanding of the sense and the meaning and the application of the law of God. He sees the law of God as it's revealed in the Holy Scriptures. He hears the law of God as it's preached on the Sabbath day. And more and more, as that one who is like a spiritual infant grows up into spiritual maturity, his eyes are opened up to the extent of his or her sinfulness. The child comes to understand the one against whom sins are committed. I've sinned not just against a mere flesh creature, but I have sinned against Jehovah God, the one who is and who was and who forever shall remain the Almighty. I've sinned against the covenant God, the God who established his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who maintains that covenant even to a thousand generations. I've sinned against that covenant-keeping God. I have sinned against the God who came to man after he fell into sin and who gave unto man the mother promise who gave unto man that hope of deliverance through the promised seed of the woman. I have sinned against the God who loves me with an unconditional, everlasting love. I've sinned against the One who sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die for my sins. And now, I have broken His law. I am prone by nature to hate both God and the neighbor. How humbling is this confession. In Nehemiah's day, when the people heard the law, they wept. They wept because of how long the law had been neglected. They were sorry that for many, many years the law of the Lord had not been read. They did not chide Ezra and Nehemiah for opening up the book of the law. They did not say we are delivered. We've been set free from captivity. We don't want now to be captives to the law of God. We don't want to go from one yoke of oppression to another yoke of oppression. But they wept because they understood that they were law breakers. Convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they were sorrowful. As God brings us to that point as well, we confess our need. Knowledge of the law reveals our need 
for a savior. The law itself does not save, for by the works of the law, no man is justified. Galatians 2. But there is power in the law. The power of the law is this, that the law brings us unto Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Apart from the law, we otherwise would be like a mountain that is fixed and sedentary and unwilling and unable to move. But God, by the power of that law, which is like a schoolmaster in our lives, moves us. He brings us unto Jesus Christ. The law does so by the power of the Holy Spirit, who softens our hearts, who gives unto us hearts that are teachable, hearts that respond unto the law of God. The law brings us unto Jesus Christ who kept the law perfectly in order that we might be delivered from the guilt of being lawbreakers. It is only in Jesus Christ that we are able to have joy as we stand before the law of God. Nehemiah exhorted the Israelites to have joy Verse 10, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let this be your strength, beloved, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is his desire and his good pleasure. The joy of the Lord is this, that he sent his only begotten son into this world to die for the sins of his people. The joy and delight of the Lord is in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. The joy and delight of the Lord is the pouring out of His Holy Spirit upon His church who comforts us and consoles us. The Israelites, as they heard that admonition from Nehemiah, obeyed. Verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they understood the words that were declared unto them. They knew of their sins, but they knew also of their hope in the coming mediator who would deliver them from the guilt of their sinfulness. And so they were able then to go forth to eat and drink and to make great mirth, understanding the words of the Lord. May God grant unto us that same spiritual ability to rejoice knowing that Jesus Christ has satisfied 
the requirements of the law. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we do give thanks unto thee for thy law, which teaches us how we are to live as Christians upon this earth. May thy law be written upon our heart. May we memorize it, love it, submit unto it, and in Jesus Christ find joy in thy commandments. Wilt thou forgive, Father, even the sins committed in this worship service, for Jesus' sake, we pray this. Amen.